This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news and media matters to people who love media. From North Quad Studios, this is Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. This week, we're going back to a subject that we consider near and dear to our hearts. Well, it, it continues to evolve. It will be probably a perennial topic of things that matter in the media business for the next two decades. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about OTT. No, we're not. <laughs> well, let, let's lead into our conversation with that. So a lot of recent news has focused on new ways to watch and all with all kinds of industry jargon like OTT, but you wrote a piece in Broadcasting and Cable arguing against this term. Why? Right. So for the uninitiated, OTT uh, stands for over the top, and it is the acronym that has developed to describe television that is delivered by internet. So in theory, this was over the top, perhaps of a cable box. The earliest site of it that I could find from about 2006, it was used very casually in a financial report to describe going over the top of someone else's platform. All right. So anyway, why do I not like OTT? I, I, I don't like OTT because I think it has obscured what has really happened in the shifting technologies of media distribution. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, so the various portals that we were going to talk about and the various news about these various ways to watch and, and access programming, they're all internet distributed. And I think a term like OTT makes it look like it's something else. And so by not just calling it what it is, which is really simply internet distributed television, it seems different and distinct in a way that isn't helpful to understanding both the continuities and the differences of this way of distributing television from those such as broadcast and cable, which we've studied and known about and understood for some time. Right. When you look at a Netflix show, it doesn't look any different from a show that would air on HBO or a network like that. You look at a Hulu show, that doesn't necessarily look different from something that would air on an FX or even a broadcast network in some of these cases. Right. And so what has happened is, is as the industry has sorted out what does it mean to distribute television over the internet and has figured out, there used to be this term webisodes. You remember that? Oh, I remember that. I like, I, watch our webisodes on yeah, you know, a random I, website here. I think that's fallen away. I and mean, I think webisodes was this notion again. I think there was this this strong belief in, in the early 2000s that the internet was something wholly different. It was a new medium. And that there was a lot of talk about, quote unquote, new media coming to disrupt uh, television. But what it turns out is that really the internet or internet distribution is a way of transmitting television that's different from cable and broadcast in some really important ways. But at the end of the day, in terms of the way most people use it and what they want in terms of internet distributed video, it's that same content that historically has been distributed by broadcast and cable. Uh, and so consequently, for that kind of content, we're seeing really similar economic models and all these things that are quite similar to the television we've known in the past. A lot of the webisodes seem to come from networks trying to figure out what they can do with this new toy. Absolutely. And that, that's certainly going to happen in a time of disruption. And so I think it's, it's difficult sometimes, especially you know, as we live through this process of change, to take stock of what is different and what is the same. And so I think... 
in coming back to this topic again with this podcast, there's just been a lot of recent news, and it, it's a good moment to reflect on what is the same, what has changed, and what really are the new strategies that we see emerging with what I will emphasize as internet distributed television as opposed to OTT. So let's start getting into some of these stories. Another story you wrote, you wrote about CBS All Access and how it's different from other platforms. Is that the angle you took? Well, I I focused on CBS All Access because there's a lot of attention to Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, and YouTube, all for good reason. I call them these portals. Um, Portals are on the internet what channels were to broadcast and cable. They're the mechanisms that organize distribution. CBS All Access is interesting to me and I think something to watch, and the news of the week really bears it out, the way in which those who actually own their own content might really lead the way into internet distributed television precisely because they own that content. And so even though there's been a lot of attention to services that have largely developed by licensing content from others, Netflix, CBS All Access was really the first aggressive move, I would argue, by a studio. Uh, So keeping in mind that while we might think of CBS as a network, it is also uh, connected to the studio that makes most of CBS programming, that it launched and and nobody was really all that excited or interested in it, right? Because for them- It just kind of got dropped out there. Like Les Moonves came out and said, hey, we're doing a thing. And there it was. Well, the timing was amazing because it happened within a few days of HBO Now announcing. And so I I think it caught caught up in that. And and certainly, you know, everyone had been waiting for something like CBS Now to be announced. And so I think that's part of it. But I think, you know, I think CBS All Access was entering this competitive space somewhat as a, a wolf in sheep's clothing in that... CBS, for the most part, was talking about it as, oh, it's this other way for you to watch our current shows. Oh, but there's also this other stuff, basically what we'd call library content, shows that CBS owns the rights to that, you know, might not be so out licensed to Netflix right now. And it might not be the top of their library. It's not exclusive to a cable channel. So, but what's interesting about this is that it most clearly illustrates the opportunity that internet distribution offers to the studios, which is the opportunity to to go direct to consumer with their content, as opposed to licensing to Netflix and kind of hoping that they get a deal that's worth it without really knowing much about the metrics. Because Netflix continues to not share their data with anybody to much of the rest of the industry's chagrin. Right. And then I think the other big piece of this that is valuable about creating a a portal like this is that CBS gets to start accumulating some data of their own, which is, I think, really, while we're still very much in the early stages of all of this, the strategy that's going to be put in place in three years or five years, if it can rely on existing data rather than hunches and presumptions. And guesses. Exactly. Then it's going to be much more strategic of a move. And they'll be able to make their decisions about what content to sell where a lot easier if they know what the audience is for it and get to get the right price. Right. And so one of the things that I've been trying to to sort out is the ways in which these portals are like channels and are different from channels. Uh, And one of the, the things that's interesting to think about is that the task of a portal is curating a library, 
Right. That's not entirely different from what the task of a channel or a network is, right? They'd first go through that process of selection, deciding what's going to be on the channel or network. But really, because broadcast and cable has scarce capacity, because they can only send one signal at a time, you know, they have to have this whole schedule. And so the schedule ends up becoming really the primary labor of the network. And so much depends on those issues of schedule position, of when things are on. And what they're airing opposite, and all these decisions that go into what happens in that scheduling room. Right. And we have decades now of expertise from folks in the industry, from academics who've scheduled it, that, you know, explain all of these different strategies about scheduling and, you know, the way that you do it. We don't know any of that when it comes to building a library. Right. We don't know what goes into why Netflix selects the shows they do. We don't know what is in their decision-making process. And we can't even properly talk about success. Like, uh, a few weeks ago, there was this story about, you know, going around. Someone else had sort of figured out this way to count Netflix viewing. And, and the, the numbers that were circulating, or this is what was watched in Netflix in the last 30 days. Well, that is totally a linear television measurement of success. A library, in the case of something like Netflix, where if they have the, the license to something you know, forever, maybe something that they've made, they don't care who watches it in the first 30 days. It is as valuable to them if you go back to the beginning and catch up you know, to the third season of House of Cards as if you've watched it from the beginning. The key is that there's something in that library or there's an accumulation of content in that library that compels you to pay the subscription. And I think the key point here is the linear way of looking at television mm -hmm. is a single show is valuable. There's value in one hit, whereas for a library... The value lies in how every piece fits together. We're so at the beginning of this that there, there, there will be particular, I call them curation tactics that will emerge. You know, so you see something like which portal is more successful, Netflix or Noggin? Noggin, for those of you without preschoolers, is a <laughs> service much like Netflix, but it's all preschooler content. Is it subscriber-based? It is. Oh. And so again, you've got... There, you know, Noggin, you know, the potential population of subscribers for Noggin, probably much smaller than Netflix. Oh, absolutely. Right? But at the same time, they're offering very specific content, really hitting a, a sweet spot for that audience in a way that Netflix, you know, offers tons and tons of content. And I would say they probably target some psychographics really specifically. but many, Including kids, right? which Noggin yeah, targets. Absolutely. And so we really just don't even have terms or theories or ways of conceptualizing the strategies characteristic of curating a library in ways that are different from scheduling a, a channel or a network. Let's talk a little bit about the vertical integration of this whole CBS All Access thing. Right. So vertical integration for people who haven't survived understanding media industries um, <laughs> or any other economics class, you know, it's the idea of controlling multiple pieces of the supply chain. So in the case of a media industry, what we have is when you control both production and distribution. And for the last two, 10, 15 years, sort of quietly, the television industry has been not only becoming more conglomerated, but vertically integrating. So before the mid-1990s, broadcast networks had to buy. They were forced by rules. Wasn't there a law or something yeah, in place that said... The financial interest in syndication rules had been created to force the networks to buy their content from production studios that they didn't own. 
and they had no ownership stake in. So that's where large studios like Aaron Spellings came into play. Right. Uh, very famous ones like MTM. In many accounts, you know, this created a golden era of television. But those rules were eliminated beginning in the ni- in mid early to mid-1990s, depending on sort of how you talk through them. And what happened was that all of a sudden NBC was buying nearly all of its shows from NBC Studios, and the same thing was going on at all the other networks. And so vertical integration allows more control over the process. And so if you look back to the late 1990s, there were a couple really high-profile cases of shows that were produced by Warner Brothers that were airing on NBC. So NBC was still purchasing a few out from away from its studio, and um, the license fees were escalating at very high rates. And sort of the something... West Wing is probably one of the uh, Friends and ER are, oh. the, are the quintessential cases. To a degree, if you're distributing your own content, then you know you're not going to get caught in that situation. And that's probably one of the biggest points of negotiation right now going on with the Big Bang Theory. They're renegotiating new contracts for beyond a season 10, which is what is currently renewed through. And stories are kind of flying around about how the negotiations are starting and the cast are going to seek pay raises and everybody involved wants to keep the show on the air, but they got to find the right price, right? Right, right. So vertical integration is important in this story because and the rest of our conversation will bear this out, is that it increasingly looks like it's going to be really difficult for new competitors in this internet-distributed content competitive space. It'll be really difficult for new competitors to come to market without owning a lot of existing intellectual property. And so so Netflix may have really just been an anomaly in a, in a at a certain time with a certain magic configuration. They were there when the studios and conglomerates didn't necessarily know how to handle this new space. And weren't willing to boldly move into it, right? right. So Netflix came, you know, began streaming television at a moment in which the studios were really concerned about controlling their intellectual property and not letting it get loose, so to say. And really, Netflix has really advanced the opportunity for streaming television as a result. So what we see with CBS All Access and what we see with the ABC platform that we're about to talk about are these entities that own quite a bit of, of when I say intellectual property, I mean old TV shows. Um, old library shows that, see, that these entities produced for other networks back in the day. As well as, you know, continuing to produce new content and that they're the ones that are able to sort of break through and potentially develop business models. All of this... I think we need to understand all of these announcements as really the different media companies that own content, that make their money off of distributing it historically many, 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 many times. They're recognizing that viewership behaviors are changing, people are watching in new ways, and they just want to make sure that their content is available no matter how viewers access television. And so I think a lot of this news is really about making sure that content is still available to those who are either cutting off cable or are choosing to never get cable, rather than, you know, sort of a perception that these are the new core of of these businesses. Right. So it's understanding where their audience is going and trying to find them in any place where they can. 
Right. I don't think there's a perception, and I don't think we have a lot of evidence that the majority of the audience is migrating in these ways. In fact, I think it's a very small minority it, at this it, point. You know, 10 million homes, I think, roughly. Um, I mean, part of the concern is who the 10 million homes are, and they tend to be younger. But I think what these various you know, services are recognizing whether a service is a, is a channel, uh, is that you don't want to be not available to any 10 million homes. And so rather than a history where we had this one way of distributing television, now I don't know that it's so much that internet distribution is coming in to replace broadcasting cable, but at least for a period of time will exist as another option and, and, and an important option in the sense that it's, adding some competition in ways to the marketplace that might lead to more choice, particularly making sure that viewers aren't bound to sort of these giant cable bundles any longer. So let's start getting into these stories that we've been previewing for the entire episode. Let's start out with one involving CBS All Access and their new Star Trek show, which is going to be their first big play for an... Actually, no, it's not even their first big play for an original series anymore. They're airing Big Brother in the fall, a new season of Big Brother. But the, the big story here is they've sold the international distribution rights and their second syndication window to Netflix instead of keeping it in-house at CBS All Access. So let's start. Why is this relevant? Well, I think, again, I must begin every, I will will not say it again, but this is the Wild West, right? So we don't know what the strategies are, and and the rules, quote-unquote, are yet to be written. And so on one hand, I mean, one rule or strategy that's emerging is exclusivity. Um, It's largely what Netflix originals are all about. Um, The idea that if you want to see these shows, you need to see them on Netflix. And and that's the way that they're driving subscribership. And it's even within the shows they're acquiring, too. A lot of the new contracts are looking to include language for exclusivity and looking to say, hey, we have this show, and we're the only people who are going to have this show. So subscribe right. to us. Which means in order to get that exclusivity, they're paying more. So that's right. important to note. So we see CBS not going with an exclusivity strategy. So For yeah. its own show. Right. And let's think this through. What if they said the only way you're ever going to be able to watch Star Trek... Discovery. Discovery um, is to... STD. Yes, I know. I, I suspect that will change. Is to watch it on CBS All Access. Well, the fact that they're not going with an exclusivity strategy suggests to me that they recognize, you know, the goal here isn't to drive a whole bunch of people into CBS All Access subscription. I mean, it, it bears out this conversation that we were having about making CBS content available to those who aren't subscribing to cable packages where they have gotten their uh, CBS channel before, assuming that you don't have an antenna and aren't just picking it up over the air. So I think that tells us a little bit about the strategy. And then I think the other piece is, I was reading somewhere that they've already covered their production costs. And so I think the other part of it is that Netflix was willing to be a valuable financial partner. Which means they were willing to pay. Right. And, and so basically, STD can't fail, right? Because it's, it, it's already a success. Right. Which, which, again, remember, is not the usual case. Usually things are deficit financed. They don't make back their money until maybe the fifth season and later. So Although this is CBS, really different. CBS has been shrewd with how they've handled some deficit financing. A lot of their summer shows 
you know, Under the Dome, Zoo, Extant, Brain Dead, they've all come in profitable before a single episode has aired because of windowing, special windowing deals yep. with Amazon and Netflix. And this is, you know, more similar to some of the practices that have been developing for financing films in recent years. So it's not that this is the only way to do things or this is the new way. It's just another way, another way that wasn't possible before you had internet distributed portals who had money to pay pretty rich license deals. But if we're saying all this about how this is valuable to CBS, why aren't Netflix and Amazon going in and doing the same thing? What do you mean? Well, why aren't Netflix and Amazon licensing their programs to other sources for that second window? Well, I think that comes back to what is the core strategy of Netflix and Amazon. And, and I think here it's, it's easy to think about all of these different services that are available. But remember, Netflix is really a technology company. Um, and Amazon, to a degree as well, like neither of those are companies that own a whole bunch of content on their own. And so as Netflix has moved into creating original content, and you can say Amazon here as well, you know, part of that, I think, has come out of a concern that they will be less able to license content in the future, but also because they want to be the only place to go. And so you do see that strategy of exclusivity being particularly important in those cases. Let's move on to our next story here. ABC launched their own streaming service. What are the details of this new ABCD service? Well, I think it, it's not radically dissimilar from what CBS All Access is doing. Except for it's free. For now. Are you excited to be watching shows on this new platform, Alex? Well, they do have classics like Felicity and My So-Called Life, but they're also bringing in debt from the bottom barrel of the ABC library. The short-lived My Generation, Mixology, and the illustrious classic, The Joseph Fine Starring Flash Forward. I watched every episode of that one, Amanda. I don't know why. It was I, I was in middle school. Well, in but. the moment, it was their effort to create the same kind of show as Lost and Heroes. One and, of their efforts. They, yes, they made well, quite a few. Yes, there were many. So it's, I think you hit right on it uh, in that... This is content they're not they're not able to monetize elsewhere. And so in this moment of sort of being uncertain about what happens next, it's valuable for these players to get out there and establish themselves before there are, you know, too many. There are already a hundred or more than a hundred of these internet distributed portals in the market. Uh, roughly at the end of 2015, roughly 75% of them were subscriber funded. Um, as opposed to ad-based. And so as the services multiply, I think there's a, a bit of a fear of missing out or a fear of trying to get in too late. Importantly, ABC as part of Disney, much of its more valued content has been distributed via Hulu. Um, and so th I think that's that's partly... And Netflix. Yes. And Netflix. So, but those are different arrangements True. for the most part. Um, and so I think that's why so CBS is sort of the sole entity that's not been part of that Hulu conglomeration. Right. Um, that's what pushed CBS All Access into the market earlier than the others. But now we have an ABC platform as well. And, and so if you've ever wanted to watch Mixology, I don't know why you would, but it's there. But it's there. And, and so that's the ABC story. I think that's probably the least interesting uh, story in 
in new forms of internet distributed television. Yeah, it, it's also go. not even necessarily an original idea because the CW Seed does something similar. They have the rights to every episode of Who's Line and they also have a bunch of Warner Brothers library content up there and even some webis- webisodes like we mentioned earlier with DC's Vixen. Right. And I think, you know, other pieces of of the news this week, it's important to understand that all of these entities are, in this early stage, highly iterative. In other words, they're changing all the time. So as of today, CBS All Access has both advertising and a subscription fee, and in the ABC platform is, is entirely free. But there's conversations about CBS All Access creating a purely subscription version, or creating, you know, a, a higher tier like Hulu does right? to and, remove commercials from and your... And this week we learned that Hulu Free is going away entirely. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a fascinating and dynamic time. And so in many ways, I think it's, it's really necessary to dig down past the fact that these are internet distributed forms and to be thinking about what are the different revenue models that are emerging. You know, what is the... What are the, if we think about the other side, the costs, you know, is it about just monetizing a library where you have a portal that's wholly based around vertical integration as you do around ABC? Or look over at something like CISO, which I think in many ways is a more interesting play. It is owned by NBC, Universal, Comcast, and it does have a lot of NBC-owned content, but they've also paid to license other content to really solidify their brand of being the comedy portal. So is there anything else we want to talk about with ABC before we and Disney before we move on? Well, I think in retrospect, I suspect the bigger news at, regarding ABC this week is that Disney bought a 33% stake in, is it BAM Tech or BAM Tech? I'm not sure I'm which not way we go. Sure We're going to call BAM Tech for $1 billion. And if you're not familiar, BAM Tech is the technology unit that m- emerged out of MLB. Major League Baseball. Uh, Major League Baseball.com. One thing that not a lot of people realize is that much of their streaming experience comes to them through technologies that were developed to help people stream baseball. If we look at different sports leagues, MLB was at the forefront of making of streaming content. They were the first ones to put out this huge subscription model that is now a very, very important part of their bottom line. You know, the two... 200 bucks a season to license the streaming rights to every game. Right, and, and if we think about what's peculiar about baseball, it makes sense. Baseball games are on all times of day, all days of the 162 week. 162 games some over Some people have months. to go to work sometime, and, you know, the opportunity to stream it was or valuable. Or if you're like me, my New York Yankees are not often broadcast in the Michigan market. So, so. you have that as well, right. So anyway, the point is MLB developed this great streaming technology infrastructure so good that increasingly, let's see, I think it was first the NHL licensed it to develop their product, and HBO Now actually runs on their technology. That's interesting. Right. Disney bought a 33% stake in that company, and then later in the week announced that there is something coming um, regarding some sort of ESPN portal. I don't want to even talk yeah, about we, that. We don't know what it is. The, we know what yeah, it the, is. The rumors are it's going to be stuff that's not on ESPN linear, which makes me jump to ESPN 3, which is there where they stream all the sports that aren't on the networks. But again, it... Right. It's, it, it's not just, going to replace ESPN, um, at least for some time. Yeah. I mean, I've heard ESPN will put out some kind of direct-to-consumer eventually, but we're nowhere near that point yet. 
I'm hearing 2024 as the as the year everything will change because <laughs> that is the end of the NFL contract. Oh. I, I haven't actually dug in to see if that is accurate, but a friend of mine was at an industry conference and that was just being tossed around as like fact. Like so. It's just so hard to know when you're talking about eight years in the future when the rights deal will probably be renegotiated long before 2024. But let, let's get into Hulu. We mentioned let's get to Hulu. we mentioned Hulu earlier, but there's been a couple big stories that have come out of this week. The first, Time Warner buying a 10% stake in the company. Yes, for a mere 583 million, which some analysts were noting really places the value of Hulu pretty low when you think about the content 10 involved. Billion? Right. Well, so 10% stake or 5 billion, so 5 excuse billion, me. Right. Yeah, yeah, I I can do math. So that that was interesting news. The part of this that's might strike folks as peculiar, you know, why is Time Warner doing this? Time Warner you know, is part of the conglomerate that owns HBO. HBO has these has this Go and this Now platform. You know, why is it joining with Hulu? And my suspicion here is that this isn't actually so much about adding uh, much of the Time Warner content to Hulu so much as Hulu has announced that they're going to offer a bundle of linear channels sometime next year. Linear in the sense so things will be live so and they on will be, at a certain so time. So they will be airing things like TBS or TNT. Is that kind of what we're getting at here? Yeah, I think that this is a product that's being developed, you know, as an alternative to the cable bundle. So right. instead, you know... So pay- is it? So are we talking about like a sling TV here? Yes, very yeah. much. And so I think that this deal is largely about getting those ne- those Time Warner networks, those the the TBS, TNT, those entities on that product, and basically Time Warner making sure that they have a stake in that. Right, because they are one of the key companies distributing cable channels. Right, and so I'm not particularly optimistic about this this Hulu product. I don't think that people want to stream television over the internet any or they don't want to stream live television over the internet any more than they want to stream live television over a cable, a cable box. box. And anyone who's sort of done the numbers on the money to be saved, you know, the, the money to be saved and getting rid of the cable bundle really isn't there because none of these packages give you everything with the breadth. Um, so if you have a very specific taste, then cutting the cord sort of works for you. But the other thing is, is that you're shifting to all of this new internet distribution and content and you're going to be hit with a higher monthly internet service fee so and it's also these cable companies bundle cable and internet together so it's really hard to figure out exactly what the exact amount you'd be saving is the short version is comcast is going to be okay so it's interesting news that this is happening again i think it comes back to entities wanting to make sure that their content is available anywhere they can get it so if two million people you know, again, we're not talking anything that's going to change the television industry. Two million people want this Hulu service, then Time Warner wants to be there. They and don't... they want to be sharing in that in that glory, I no. bounty, bounty, Bound, that's the word. Subscription dollars. Yes. Right. So you don't want your content to be unavailable. So I think that's what this is all about. 
So Hulu Free also disappeared. So they're getting rid of that free tier, which is what they built Hulu on in the first place. Well, but this is how this is how you change people's behavior, right? right. You, 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 get you offer of them it. something for free and you teach them, you know, you can come here to watch these shows and eventually we'll put enough advertisements in them to, you know, uh, make it really annoying. And then not let ad block work. Right, right. So... I was trying to figure out whether something was on Hulu the other day, and I was even trying to figure out, this was before the announcement, I couldn't even find, the content that actually existed on Hulu Free seemed to be very, very limited anyhow. Yeah, I mean, they they don't have stacking rights in a lot of cases, and if they do, they relegate the back episodes to the paid tier. Really, Hulu Free is, what, last five usually? Last five episodes? Right. So, you know, it's, it's again, sort of the story of these changing business models. I think what's important here to recognize, in, and especially in light of the ABC announcement, is the way in which no portal has figured out a way to be financially viable on ad support alone. And, and the numbers on Hulu, importantly, Hulu continues to not make money. Hulu is estimated to have a 2016 operating loss of $420 million um, on $1.9 billion in revenue. So we haven't talked about YouTube at all, and that's a, totally a topic for a different conversation. Different podcast. Different podcast. But, you know, as again, as we're sorting out the differences in these internet distributed portals, recognizing the portals that have content that cost a lot to create, at this point... Advertiser support is not viable. And it, it's because digital money isn't quite there. It's a lot of reasons. Yeah. But, um, so the big takeaway we're getting at, the television industry is no longer in denial about where their viewers are going and where the money is going. So I don't know about the money. Um, I think it's, it's more a recognition that internet distributed television is going to exist. Right. People want the convenience that comes with it. You know, as a distribution technology, it has the capacity for something much closer to person casting than that broad mass experience. And that's, I think, primarily what people are gravitating toward when they express, you know, their their great fondness for services like Netflix. And we also want to keep an eye on the people who monetize through content ownership instead of technology companies. What's the distinction that we're looking at here? Right. So I think it's coming back not necessarily to the way we interact with these portals as consumers, but think about their nature as businesses, right? And so historically, CBS, ABC, Time Warner, these are companies that make most of their money based on the content that cre they create, uh, the content that they create, and then they've licensed it to themselves, to others, etc. But they, they, they are content companies, as opposed to those that have come in that, and been more technology-based. Companies such as Netflix, Yahoo, Apple, Facebook, YouTube as well, Twitter. with its emphasis on user-generated content, Twitter as well. The stories, I'm not saying that the stories for those technology companies are all the same, it's just that they are distinct from the other companies that, at the end of the day, are about content creation. And right. when we talk about what internet distribution really allows, that's different from what was the case of the broadcast and cable industries, now, if, if you think about sort of the chain of entities, you have people who create content on one end, you have audiences that want content on the other end. Right. And 
what has developed over the decades are many, many middlemen. You know, you have channels that organize it, then you had cable service providers that made who those orga- deals. Who organized those channels. Right, right. And so you kind of had this process of middlemen developing. And in many ways, what internet distribution allows is it allows those people who are making the content to connect directly to the audiences. The purest form of that we saw earlier this year with Louis C.K.'s Horace and Pete experiment. Right. So I'm not saying that that's the model, but it is interesting when these studios with this huge infrastructure and expertise in the making of content... And this huge library of content. ...don't have to go through schedulers at a network... Don't have to go through the mediators. Right. And so so that, that is where I think you know, we really will continue to see more and more differentiation. And you do see some an entity such as Netflix, I think, recognizing that. And that's why you know, they're talking about spending six, eight, ten, twelve million on original programming next year. I, what, it's six billion this year and Ted Sarandos hasn't denied that going up and... Right, and so that's an effort to move very aggressively into that space, whereas we've seen, you know, in in recent weeks, effectively the the death and failure of Yahoo, a company that try it, at at one point was trying content creation, but Yahoo's arguably great. too late, and Apple's ongoing struggles to sort of figure out and try to find its place in here again. It's trying to create its own TV shows. Yeah, and I'm not sure that one or five is enough. And we'll talk about YouTube and Facebook as the entities that are making advertising work on another day. But importantly, they don't have, you know, that kind of licensed content that's really expensive and really, I would argue, seems to be creating a different industry, a different business model. So now we move into our last segment of each and every show, what we're watching this week. Amanda, what are you watching this week? Well, I have been watching quite a bit of Olympic coverage. So as have I. And mixed in there a little bit, I've been catching up on the OJ Made in America oh, documentary series. fantastic. It is. It's so strange to me how much of the late 90s have been back in my life this year, (laughs) mainly through televised versions of the O.J. Simpson story. But I know that's been well done and it's been fascinating and disturbingly timely. But also, you know, the the Olympic coverage, I I have to say that I have been DVRing it and then um, like I'll watch an episode of OJ Made in America and then I watch what's happened on the Olympics and sort of catch up in real time. And then eventually you'll actually catch back up to air because... And then I have to go to bed because I've been so frustrated with the ad load. I just, I have lost my tolerance. I've known this, but I have lost my tolerance for watching ads. But isn't this how NBC can pay one point? Two billion, or however much they paid for Rio for the Olympics again. That is the theory, and and I would suggest that maybe next time. I, I don't know. There, I, at least in my Twitter feed, there's a lot of complaining about the ad load. Um, I know to a degree the numbers are down, and you know who knows whether that is a function of of, of just people not being interested, or the fact that people have learned to watch in different ways. And or yeah, there's uh, digital streams have gone up what, as the television ratings have gone down. I mean, it, it's correlation. I don't think there's quite causation. The digital, there. the digital ratings are NBC is making quite a bit of them, but I saw a, a nice comparison to, so it's something like 
1.2, 1.8 billion minutes at this point yeah. have been have been streamed, which is equivalent to what Netflix does in the U.S. alone every six hours. Yeah. Right? So a little bit of perspective about you know how much streaming's going on, but. Now, certainly, it's it's a challenging event to pull off, and I think sort of recognizing all the things that are different in terms of different ways that people can watch, different ways that people become accustomed to watch, might and require different a different business model. And different it. ways the stories are getting out, like gymnastics. I would watch gymnastics at my desk at the end of the day, and then, you know, it would air at 11 o'clock that, later that night, so I knew the result six hours before... Anybody who watched NBC in primetime, and then another three hours after that, the West Coast gets the result on the air. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it'd be interesting to somehow study the, I guess it's the equivalent of spoilers, right? Because right. I've known the, the results of a lot of the races that I've been uh, enjoying very much as I've watched them as well, but yeah, just seeing the event, you know, is still pretty impressive, even if you know the outcome. Uh, anyway, Alex, what are you watching? Well... After I talked about it so much on our theater podcast, I went to New York and I saw Hamilton on Broadway. It was... The best thing I can say for it is it lived up to all of the hype around it. And it that's is, not easy. No, it, it was a great show. I'm still confused <laughs> as to how Lin-Manuel Miranda pulled this hip-hop musical about Alexander Hamilton together... And just something that is so impressive and so emotionally charged and so energetic and frantic and intense and yet grounded at the same time, grounded in both reality and history and these characters. It, it's just so well done. Truly genius. So that's it for this episode of Media Business Matters. You can find other episodes of Media Business Matters at amandalots.com. Or by searching Media Business Matters in iTunes. Amanda, where can our fine listeners follow you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots. That's D R T V L O T Z. And you can reach our Media Business Matters mailbag at Dr. TV Lots at gmail.com. And you can find me at Alex Intner, Alex I N T N E R. Now, Amanda and I are going to enjoy some nice time off before the semester begins, but Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in September.